0: As the world gets bigger, financially, it becomes more volatile. And I think the reason for that is that basically uh, you've got a situation where liquidity is ever expanding and solvency is in progressive decline because the quality of debt uh, at the margin is continually going down. The quality of that debt is deteriorating. And that's really a function of the huge amounts of debt that we've got that uh, the world economy has got itself saddled with.
2: Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting, as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like and we want to explore their perspectives on a host of game changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. So please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Harry Krisnan.
3: Thanks very much, Niels, for this introduction. Uh, my guest today is Michael Howell, Managing Director of Cross Border Capital in, in London, and author of Capital Wars The Rise of Global Liquidity which was published by Paul Grave Macmillan in March, 2020. It's a real pleasure to have Michael on the show. Uh, and as a side note, I did work with Michael for many years in the UK and it's great to have him back. And, uh,
0: it's great to speak to you, Michael. Um, thank you. Good. Great to be here, Harry. Look forward to, to the chat. Great. Uh,
3: why don't we start with a little bit of your background and how you came to write the book?
0: Okay. To start at the at the beginning, um, my first sort of entry into uh, the world of finance and uh, uh, capital flows is really with Salomon Brothers, the uh, the American investment bank. Uh, for those people that don't know, Salomon Brothers uh, was the uh, the preeminent fixed income trader worldwide. Uh, it uh, was in many cases the the bond market for many countries, and Salomon's business really depended on. Understanding flows of money and how flows of money were moving around the world, um, and it was identifying those flows and trying to understand them that was really the key, uh, the key input into our research process. Great,
3: and then what what uh, led you to start cross border capital?
0: Well, I think to uh, to sort of extend on that on that idea, the uh, the whole idea about monitoring capital flow was uh, was a critical one. Uh, back in the mid nineteen eighties, when I started to do it, it was uh, it, it wasn't really very well understood. Uh, not many people track capital flows. In actual fact, in truth, the uh, the capital flows had only recently been sort of deregulated worldwide. Uh, although the US still had had an open capital account for a long time. uh, Many European uh, economies, and Japan even, uh, had closed capital accounts. There wasn't really very much activity. And it was really from uh, around the mid-'70s, but particularly in 1979, when Margaret Thatcher uh, basically got rid of UK exchange controls, that the whole international cross-border market began to uh, sort of spiral upwards. I mean, there was uh, exponential growth. And monitoring that uh, th- that market uh, and trying to understand the implications for fixed income, for forex markets, and ultimately for equity markets was a critical research tool. Uh, we did that at Salomon Brothers for uh, for many years. Uh, I then moved to Bearings. Uh, Bearings was uh, the uh, was sort of the key uh, investment bank for emerging markets, and so we extended the framework into emerging markets uh, from the early. Uh, early 1990s. And then bearings, as probably people remember, had their own issues. uh, And ultimately, we decided to uh, uh, quit investment banking in general and go into investment advisory. It was probably a a safer business, so to speak, uh, certainly more more solid. And so since uh, the late 1990s, cross-border capital was founded, and we've, we set ourselves up as an investment advisor. Uh, we both do, we do both research markets, we provide a lot of data uh, on the liquidity flows and capital flows worldwide, and we also have a, a division which runs money based on that, uh, on that uh, information input.
3: Uh, of course, I need to ask you the obvious question then. What exactly is liquidity, at least according to your definition?
0: Well, I think it's uh, the the easiest way to uh, to to define it is in its probably simplest form. It's the total amount of savings um, and credit that are flowing through world financial markets. Uh, one of the things that we stress, sort of right out front, is this is not money supply. Uh, money supply, as people understand it, is really a retail concept. Uh, it's really about the uh, the amount of deposits. That are held by retail uh, investors in major high street banks, our definitions of liquidity pretty much begin where those more conventional definitions of money end. So we're looking very much at a financial market concept. We're looking really at the capacity uh, of the financial system to, uh, let's say, refinance uh, positions. The main thing that we emphasize in all our research is that the nature of the financial system is very, very different from the standard textbook view. The standard textbook view is that financial markets are there for new financing, uh, in other words, to finance capital spending or whatever. Uh, that no longer is really the case, particularly in the West. Uh, you will recall that most capital spending anyways is, uh, is now done in China or in Asia. The West doesn't really do very much capex anymore. Uh, most, of the, uh, most of the time, capital markets are really engaged in refinancing activity that is rolling over existing debt. Uh, and I'll come on to the magnitude of that in a second. But the point about liquidity is that liquidity is a measure of the capacity of capital in the system, the ability to refinance positions fundamentally. Understood.
3: And in terms of order of magnitude type estimates, how much debt is there
0: out there in the world? And how much of it needs to be rolled over I think this is the this is the the, the key point what you've got at the moment is uh, levels of debt which are about three hundred and fifty trillion dollars so that's about three and a half times world GDP now the average maturity of debt is around about five years so that would suggest that what you've got is uh, around 70, 70 trillion of debts that need to be refinanced uh, every year now If you contrast that with new capital spending, the world economy, as I said, is about 100 trillion. About one-fifth of that is devoted to capital spending, and about half that capital spending is externally financed through capital markets, which makes a figure of around about 10 trillion for new capital issues. So the 70 trillion of refinancing of existing debt is seven times the 10 trillion new financing for new CapEx. So capital markets are very much about refinancing activity. And the point about refinancing is that interest rates matter uh, to a lesser extent than the ability to get the role. If you need to refinance your position because your debt is maturing, uh, what you've got to do is to make sure that you get that role. If you don't get the role, you'll default, or if you're a mortgagee, you'll find yourself homeless. Uh, so it's the role that is important, the capacity of capital in the system. Uh, in other words, liquidity really matters. And that's one of the points that we keep stressing, and we think central bankers have really lost sight of they they focus too much on interest rates and particularly low interest rates and the problem with low interest rates is they compound the problem by encouraging more and more debt uh hence you know frequent financial crises
3: can you say anything about the um about trends in the uh growth of securitized lending versus non-securitized, and how that
0: relates to the treasury market? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, particularly since the global financial crisis in 2008, uh, the vast majority now of credit and liquidity flows are collateralized, and securitization in some form is a, is a, uh, a key part of that. Um, prior to 2008, there was a lot of unsecured lending. Uh, in other words, lending based more on trust, but really, since that uh, that sort of watershed moment in 2008, uh, the vast bulk of the financial system is really dependent on collateral, and that collateral uh, is something which is um, you know looms in the background. It's a critical thing to understand because in many cases, or for many markets, there is a shortage of collateral. Now, what does that really mean? What it really means is that there's a shortage of good quality assets that can back loans. Now, those high-quality assets, or so-called pristine, pristine collateral, are things like US Treasury notes and bonds, uh, UK gilts, um, uh, German bunds, for example. Those are all assets, government ha- government-backed assets, that are used as collateral in many financial transactions. One of the ironies that we've had in the last uh, 10, 15 years since the financial crisis, is that number one, government austerity policies have actually reduced the supply of this pristine collateral. Um, secondly, you've got central banks engaged in quantitative easing policies, and those quantitative easing policies basically vacuum up a lot of that pristine collaterals, leaving the private sector short. And you can see the problem in many cases if you look at things like term premia, Uh, in the bond markets. Now, term premier are a slightly wonkish concept, but let me just try and explain what a term premier is. Uh, A bond uh, will have really two moving parts. One of those moving parts is interest rate expectations. In other words, what uh, investors consider uh, the future path of policy interest rates to be over the term of the bond. The other element are uh, factors which will then alter the price of the bond depending on um, supply and demand factors uh, along the term structure. So for example, if regulation uh, force investors to hold more government bonds, in other words, they'll force pension funds to hold more bonds or banks to hold more bonds, there could be an excess demand for bonds at that particular tenor, and that will then cause uh, term premium to be uh, depressed, maybe even negative, uh, and it will cause distortions in the, in the shape of the yield curve. Now, one of the things that we've seen over the course of the last 10, 15 years, as I say, is a tremendous demand for say, these safe assets. There's a shortage of supply. And on top of uh, you know, normal demands, uh, regulation is increasing the whole time. For example, the Basel III regulations, the Solvency II regulations that affect insurance companies, uh, the former affecting banks, basically mean that uh, you've got to, there's a very healthy Ready demand for safe assets in the system, and there's just not enough around consequently, you know one of the warning signs I would suggest that we all ought to be paying a lot more attention to is the fact that uh, in the u s treasury market the world' is sort of the the centerpiece of world financial markets in many ways uh you've got the lowest ever uh, reading for bond term premium at the ten year tenor, which is you know normally taken to be the benchmark bond the ten year. Uh, the lowest ever, and and it's very negative. Uh, And that must be telling us something about uh, risks in the system. It's either saying that bond investors are discounting a huge upcoming recession, maybe that's true. It's either telling us as well that there's a structural shortage of collateral in the system, that may well be true as well, and or it's telling us that there's a big shortage of liquidity. And that's one of the things that we currently are emphasizing or are warning about. Liquidity is basically getting scarcer and scarcer as central banks withdraw cash. So let me see if I can piece this
3: back together. So you mentioned an estimated seventy trillion dollars roll per year of of refinanced debt. Uh, if I understand correctly, there's about twenty trillion of outstanding treasury debt in existence. Yeah, exactly. I'm that's roughly the right number. exactly. And every time the Fed engages in QE, they basically swap debt for reserves Mm -hmm. and reserves are not useful as collateral. Correct. So that causes a further constriction in the available supply of treasuries. Correct. Now, why would that cause a dip in longer duration treasuries? I mean, why wouldn't short term treasuries be even more desirable as collateral than longer term
0: ones? I think there are there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, one is that um, they, they, you've got different audiences in the market or different constituencies that demand different types of uh, of safe assets. For pension funds, you would tend to find that uh, the ten year the ten year bond is the is the critical one to look at. Uh, what's more, if you felt that a recession was upcoming, the ten year bond would offer quite a lot of uh, of safety because it would typically rally more. In an environment where interest rate uh, prospects were uh, starting to go down or uh, investors generally wanted uh, the safety of a, of a government bond, the impact of their demand on price would be much greater. So in other words, there'd be a lot more leverage for the investor uh, effectively in that 10-year bond. Uh, at the front end of the curve, the, 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 the Treasury bill or maybe a one or two-year bond, certainly in demand as well. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, but it's the it's the longer term uh, bond which is really the focus of the market. The ten year bond tends to be, as I say, a sort of benchmark issue. But it's, it's you're undoubtedly you're undoubtedly correct. There's also demand for shorter data stuff too. Understood.
3: And you know, one thing that you point out, and it's even suggested in the name of your firm, is that cross border flows are extremely significant. And I know that various people have have increasingly understood that they are significant. There are people like Jeff Snyder at Eurodollar University and so forth who emphasize this very strongly, by the way. But uh, can you say something about the nature of the offshore market in dollar lending, Um, how it differs from what goes on in the US and how it may be outside the control of the Fed?
0: yeah the the offshore market is is a somewhat nebulous beast because nobody really knows the the true size of it. but what it basically consists of uh are off offshore dollar and actually other currencies but mainly dollar deposits so those uh, international currency deposits are outside of their their new their normal jurisdiction so for example, it could be uh, U.S. dollars held in London, U.S. dollars held in Frankfurt, could be sterling pounds held in New York, etc. So that offshore market is really outside of normal regulation of the central banks. It's offshore pools of money. And that tends to be very fast moving money. It's money that is in the financial system, and it will move around. So for example, if U.S banks become short of liquidity, they will often go out to the euro-dollar market to tap into it. Uh, so that tends to be a source of marginal financing. It really depends on, I think, one's, uh, one's sort of view generally about how important those offshore markets are relative to the central banks. Now, regarding the euro-dollar markets, the other question to address is their their relative importance in uh, in terms of uh, driving global liquidity, and I think it was it was it was unambiguous that if you go back to the time of 2008 or pre 2008, that the offshore markets were a a dominant feature. They were uh, in many cases driving a lot of the flows uh, internationally. Post 2008, it's really been a different question. Uh, whereas, sort of uh, in the lead up to the global financial crisis, the central banks to a large extent have been muscled out. Of the credit creation process, uh, what they've done since 2008, through regulation and through massive balance sheet expansion, is really to muscle back in again. And I think it's a it's a moot point today whether the central banks are now equal uh, or even more dominant than the eurodollar markets. And you know, in many cases, uh, you know, even if you look at the at the supply of dollars internationally, the Federal Reserve is now a major supplier through swap lines uh and what swap lines mean are uh, that the federal reserve has effectively opened branch offices around the world uh to friendly in friendly economies to supply dollars when needed uh if uh those financial systems ever become short and i think that's a critical factor which we can you know uh, cut back into later on if you want to uh, address the uh, the bretton woods system or uh as people are now talking about bretton woods 2 or bretton woods 3 in terms of international finance but save it to say, I think the conclusion I would, I would bring out of this is that cross-border flows are important, uh, still very much important, but the central banks have really come forward in the last 10, 15 years to become uh, the dominant players again. And the two big central banks that one has to pay considerable attention to are the Federal Reserve, needless to say, but also the People's Bank of China. Uh, those are the two big players in the system right now. Perfect. That brings me to two questions. The
3: first one is, you mentioned the swap lines with friendly nations or friendly counterparties. I presume China is not one of those friendly nations and that probably leads right into some of the issues you address in the book. Correct, yeah. And the second question, maybe it's the questions aren't that closely aligned, but nonetheless, as far as I know, the People's Bank of China, the, their ass- the asset side of their balance sheet, is smaller than the ECB's. Last time I checked, and it's not much bigger than the BOJ's, the Bank of Japan's. So why is the People's Bank of China so significant,
0: um, in in from your perspective? Okay, I, so let's let's sort of dive straight into the PBOC. Uh, in terms of the of the of the People's Bank, the People's Bank has. Um, very very tight control or exercises very tight control over the chinese financial system um in a way that the Federal Reserve probably does now but didn't uh pre two thousand and eight uh the Chinese financial system is uh, a nascent financial system it's nothing like as complex as a western country particularly the u s uh it's pretty straightforward uh in terms of the of the type of institutions and the type of instruments they trade uh and because of that, the People's Bank can actually exercise pretty tight control. Uh, there are, you know, there are, there are clearly very large state banks uh, that that uh, listen to it directly, and in many cases, the operation of the PBOC or the way it controls the banking system is very similar to the way that the Bank of Japan uh, controlled the Japanese financial system. Uh, through the 1980s and actually pretty much the same as how the Central Bank of Korea, uh, controls the Korean financial system. It's really through window guidance. In other words, what the, what the central bank does is it, uh, has lending targets that it gives to the major state-owned bank br- banks. Uh, they can lend to particular industries and that's really how credit creation occurs. Now, um, whereas the, uh, people's bank has, you're probably correct to say, Maybe a marginally smaller balance sheet now than the European Central Bank. Uh, it has been larger, relatively uh, speaking, or sorry, it has been larger in absolute terms than these the other players. It was actually even bigger than the Federal Reserve at one stage about two years ago. It's also been very fast growing, and the other thing is, it has uh, a major effect on the credit aggregates in the Chinese economy. Now, even though the uh, the PBOC is smaller, uh, as we note than some of the other central banks now. I mean, it's not a big difference, but Chinese liquidity is hugely bigger. The pool of Chinese liquidity represents about, uh, 33% of, or one third of total global liquidity worldwide, uh, actually even surpassing U.S., uh, U.S. domestic liquidity. So this is a big, big player in the system. And the PBOC is uh, an important lever uh, in terms of controlling Chinese liquidity. Now, it, is, it, is, it, is it fair to say, uh, sorry, uh, that
3: as always in financial markets, the rate of change of some quantity is as, if not more important than the size as price movements occur at the margins? Is that kind of one of the things you're pointing yes, to? Yes, I think
0: that, that's certainly one of, the, one of the factors. I mean, Chinese liquidity has grown you know, spectacularly. Uh, you know, even if one goes back to year 2000, uh, if my figures are correct, uh, or my, my memory is correct, rather, uh, you know, Chinese liquidity was then about 8% of, of, of global liquidity, and in 20 years, it's muscled forward to basically become, um, you know, a, a third of global liquidity. There's been absolutely phenomenal growth. Now, the point about uh, China and understanding China is that China's economic footprint is huge. Its financial footprint is basically at the moment a lot smaller, but China wants to get that footprint larger. And in order to get that financial footprint, uh, you know, as dominant as its industrial economy, uh, what China needs to do is to internationalize the yuan. Now, paradoxically, at the moment, China is uh, a major re exporter of dollars. And what it should be doing is exporting yuan uh, into the world economy. And it's simply not doing that. But that's what they intend to do. Uh, there are very clear policy statements that the Chinese have made. And uh, I, I put some sort of one or two quite delicious quotes that uh, one in particular that comes from uh, a general, a prominent general in the People's Liberation Army, uh, who's often a spokesman for the administration in China, who actually says explicitly that a goal of China is to displace the US dollar uh, as the major currency within the Asian region. And uh, he's explicit to say that the Belt and Road Initiative is one of the, uh, you know, is one of the programs they're using to actually uh, lever up the uh, the yuan in terms of internationalisation. Now, the program that China is likely to engage in to get there really consists of three different legs, in my view, anyway. The first of those legs would be to re-denominate trade in yuan. Now, is that an easy task? Actually, the answer is relatively easy. China is the world's biggest importer and exporter. Uh, Most of that trade is currently conducted in US dollars or invoiced in US dollars. And at the stroke of a pen, it would be feasible for China to change that invoicing into yuan. Now from that base, China could then create a trade credit market using Chinese banks uh, to intermediate the flows. Uh, and that was exactly paralleling what U.S. banks did in the wake of World War I, when the British banks actually stepped back from international lending, uh, during, I think it was, it was during the war, but it was around 1915, 1916. Uh, the U.S. muscled in, uh, the U.S. dollar became the dominant international currency within a very, very short space of time. By the early 1920s, most countries uh, foreign exchange reserves were dominated by by U.S. dollars. Sterling had been uh, had been sort of elbowed out, and therefore one's got to consider the re-invoicing of trade to be a major threat to the dollar in the in the longer term. Now, is China intending to do that? I, my answer is absolutely it is. Uh, otherwise, why would China be engaged in swap lines? I think there are currently thirty six swap lines uh, between the People's Bank of China and other regional central banks. Uh, At the moment, those swap lines must be uh, set up for future trade flows, to finance future trade flows. The second thing that China needs to do is to open up its bond market to international capital. Now, show what's happened this year where there's been some retreat of international capital, the opening up of the Chinese bond market to foreign investment has actually been very successful. It has attracted a lot of inward capital. And given the yields that are on Chinese bonds, uh, that would likely be a future uh, you know, avenue as well to exploit or to further. The third thing is to look at digital currencies. And China, is, uh, as we know, is well advanced on a digital yuan uh, that will facilitate peer-to-peer transfers. It will try and get over the trust issue, which is clearly nagging the, uh, uh, the establishment or internationalization of the yuan. But maybe a, a, a digital currency with transparency will help to get around that. And actually, latterly, the Chinese um, have uh, partnered with uh, other brick economies. Uh, to set up an international currency rival to the dollar, which was an, an announcement they made in the BRICS conference in June of this year. so there is clearly some momentum going on. My view is it will take a long time for China to get there, but you know as the uh, you know as the as the Chinese say, every journey begins with one step, and this may be a ten or twenty year journey, but they 're definitely embarking uh, along that route. And what the Chinese are trying to do is exactly what the Europeans tried to do uh, in the 1960s and 1970s, and that is to uh, eliminate the exorbitant or so-called exorbitant privilege that America has with the dollar, that it can actually gain uh, seigniorage, so-called seigniorage, which is actually the ability to buy real resources with paper assets. Uh, because you're a, a global reserve currency, China wants its slice of that pie, and it's trying to, uh, you know, get rid of America's exorbitant privilege and replace it with Chinese exorbitant privilege uh, using the, inter- the 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 yuan. The yuan.
3: Why, why hasn't uh, China opened its bond markets up to international investors?
0: Well, it has, but I mean, I think the the the, the general point is why why haven't uh, why is China's uh why are there capital controls which are basically stopping uh the the exit of more particularly the exit of chinese capital internationally well the answer is that uh, uh i think because a lot of chinese would uh see that as a wonderful opportunity to get their money offshore now we saw a a, a taster of that in 2015 2016 when in its endeavors to join the uh, the imf's uh its the imf's currency the sdr uh, one of the preconditions for that was that China had to uh, drop its capital controls, and it did that. Uh, the problem was that that dropping of capital controls coincided with the anti-corruption drive of Xi Jinping, and consequently, a lot of money left China uh, and went actually into the, the US dollar. Uh, there were huge capital outflows. It weakened the yuan. And it basically uh, spooked the Chinese sufficiently for them to slap capital controls back on pretty quickly. So I think that there's, uh, you know, that that's always a risk. So I think like many things in China, this is going to be a controlled process. Uh, don't expect an overnight big bang. But China is basically, you know, uh, angling towards uh, internationalizing the yuan. And the ideal situa- situation for them would be to have basically uh, capital controls preventing Chinese um, capital leaving to allow foreign capital to go in and basically to have convertibility on current account uh, you know, uh, for trade reasons. So that would be an ideal mix. Whether they get there, who knows, but I think the determination is there and they want to internationalise the Yuan. Now, if you want to continue this story in maybe a more speculative vein, I think one of the things to start pondering is what China has been doing since 2016. Uh, with its currency. And in 2016, there was a rumoured agreement that came out of the Shanghai uh, G20 conference, which basically, uh, supposedly, was uh, uh, an accord which was an attempt to then weaken the strong US dollar. And out of that uh, uh, Shanghai Accord, there followed a period of about five years of remarkable stability across Asian currencies, with the uh, Chinese Yuan uh, really being at the center of that that block. So what the Asian economies were doing was creating a de facto Asian Euro. Now, that may be a sort of rather fanciful thought, but if you look at the evidence, as they say, if it's yellow and quacks, it's a duck. And basically, um, for that five-year period, volatility across the Asian currencies talking about cross-currency uh, volatility here of the cross-rates, uh, fell below the uh, the volatility seen during the Bretton Woods period. So you had a de, de facto fixed currency block operating. Mm. Now, that fixed currency block is likely to be a platform or w- was designed to be a platform, I would uh, I would imagine, for China to further its ambitions of internationalizing the yuan. China's central bank was intervening in the money markets. It was easing and tightening policy, so it stabilised the value of the Yuan uh, against other crosses. Uh, That that much was clear. And China's monetary policy has been dictated through this period by the idea of stabilising the Yuan. So the old idea, the old policy idea of growth at all costs for China, uh, where they were goosing their economy at any opportunity to try and manufacture huge growth, uh, stopped in 2016, and the era of stability, particularly yuan stability, has been uh, was launched. Now that ended very abruptly uh, in uh, late February, early March this year, and uh, without necessarily getting into conspiracy theories, uh, it occurred about a week or so after the invasion of of uh, Ukraine. Uh, what basically happened was that the, Chi- the uh, Chinese yuan came under pressure but it came under pressure because the japanese yen was in freefall and through a period i think it was uh, it was a period uh, from early march to early may the japanese yen devalued at an annualized rate of 82% now in all my years in financial markets i've never seen a currency or markets do that to a currency uh, only governments do that uh, now it could have been as some people have suggested uh, an astute move by the Japanese to try and improve their competitiveness. But, you know, hey, there were no shouts of foul or unfair play uh, by the US Treasury when only 18 months earlier, with a lesser devaluation of the Vietnamese dong, uh, the US Treasury were jumping up and down complaining. But in this case, nobody said a word, not even the not even the Japanese. Uh, they allowed this massive devaluation of the yen. Now, that put a lot of pressure on the Chinese uh Yuan, It put a lot of pressure on the Korean won, which basically went and devalued alongside the yen. But the Chinese throughout were struggling to hold the level of the yuan up against the then raging US dollar and the collapsing uh, other Asian currencies. The Chinese did that by taking a lot of liquidity out of their financial markets. Uh, During a period, during that period in the second quarter, uh, a period where the Chinese PBOC normally injects a lot of liquidity to Chinese financial markets. They withdrew $100 billion equivalent out of those markets. That is not a central bank that is uh, determined to ease monetary policy. They are, t- they are tightening. And that's one of the reasons that the Chinese economy is on its back, not just because of the COVID problems, but because liquidity has been tightened. And as a result of that, what you've seen a commodity market. Prices, commodity markets now coming under a lot of downward pressure because of that tightness and the reversal of the Chinese economy. So I think this was a deliberate policy, maybe engineered by the US Treasury and in cahoots with the Japanese as well, to try and shake the tree and put a lot of pressure on China. And our view through this year has fundamentally been that what you're looking at is a monetary policy in the US, which wants to get the dollar up, and the Federal Reserve balance sheet down. Uh, well, in any case, if let's
3: let me ask a slightly more speculative question, which is that let's say that Chinese-denominated debt became as liquid as U.S. Treasuries, or nearly as liquid, and it was postable as collateral, as high-quality collateral in global repo markets. What what impact would that have on the U.S.? Well,
0: I think the uh in in that hypothetical, and we've got to stress that's a hypothetical situation, in that hypothetical situation, China would be you know a clear rival to the US. And the point about being able to internationalize your currency is really a question of saying, what sort of resources can you buy internationally? How can you use your capital to dominate? And that really comes back to the title of the book, which is Capital Wars. And you know what it's trying to uh, understand is that maybe that threat of when does Chinese capital, uh, you know, face off the US in terms of a of international rivalry, and it may well be that uh, you know uh, wars are fought much more in terms of financial markets and capital flows today than actually you know troops on the ground. Uh, that that's really the the maybe the issue. But I think that if you saw a situation where. China was uh, was operating along those lines. The question would one question would be would who would who would recognise that uh, that debt as collateral, Um, and that would presumably be be countries within a Chinese domain. So let's say that there is a world economy that is cleaving into two halves, one which is a dollar zone and one which is maybe a Chinese yuan zone. The Chinese would then be in a situation where they could lend against. That uh, yuan bond collateral uh, within that domain, uh, presumably the the countries in that domain would be uh, some Asian countries, presumably Russia, presumably North Korea, presumably uh, Iran, uh, maybe Saudi Arabia, maybe Brazil, maybe South Africa along the BRICS lines as well uh, but you've clearly got challenges then to the dominance of the of the US dollar. But you know what you what you're really saying, Harry, is that you know what is the possibility of there being two worlds out there? Uh, you know, one being one being financed by dollars and one being financed by yuan. And I think the the, the reality is that that maybe is the way that we're going. Uh, now, have we seen that before? I think we have seen that before. We saw that in. Uh, what people refer to as the original Bretton Woods Agreement. Now, it's very fashionable today to talk about Bretton Woods II and Bretton Woods III. Uh, in many ways, I don't think that Bretton Woods I ever really went away. Uh, there have been different arrangements uh, in the international uh, financial system, but basically, the uh, the parameters of the original system still remain very much in place. And those are, uh, you know, number one, the dollar at the at the centre of the whole process that still is very is very true today maybe the dollar is actually ironically even more dominant uh, than it was back in uh, back in those days the uh, the second thing is that you've got uh, policing by or policing of inter- individual countries uh, finances by the IMF and the World Bank so if if any particular country gets into payment difficulties the IMF or the World Bank can actually come in and uh, reorganize and restructure them. And the third thing is, which you know, again, we mustn't, mustn't lose sight of, is the whole system is backstopped by the U.S. military. Now, why is that important? It's important if you're looking at trade flows. And one of the issues to face up to is what happens in a situation where you've got uh, large distances to, uh, to to take goods by by ship. I'm thinking here maybe of uh, Gulf oil, uh, and the role of the U.S. military in that uh, in that arena is clearly very important. Now, if the US backs off in that regard, uh, are the Chinese able to safeguard their own trade with the Middle East in terms of uh, being able to allow Chinese, uh, the Chinese Navy to escort tankers? And I don't think they have the facilities to do that yet. Uh, you know, the uh, geographically, it's difficult. Uh, militarily, it's difficult. Um, and this is all part of really uh, this whole question about capital wars and international currency. But the last thing I'll say about the, uh, about the Bretton Woods deal is that the Bretton Woods deal, Bretton Woods one so called was actually, uh, the, the domain of Bretton Woods one was the free world. It clearly excluded, uh, the People's Republic of China and it excluded the Soviet Union. It was basically, uh, allowing capital and trade flows to move around the free world. And that's what we're going back to quite rapidly in my view. And I think that's endorsed by Uh, the statements that Janet Yellen made, particularly the speech at the Atlantic Council, I think it was in May of this year, called Friendshoring, and the follow-up speeches that Blinken made about China uh, about a month or six weeks later. What they're doing is really underscoring the parameters of a sort of new Bretton Woods-style world where Friendshoring is basically allowing trade and capital flow and dollar lending and borrowing in uh, in a situation or in a group of friends it's friend showing it's friendly nations that are getting together uh, you're either in you're either with the US or you're against the US and I think that's that's become very clear now winding back the clock
3: from the hypothetical to the present uh, another major uh, point in the book as I understand it is the increasing Network risk within the financial system and the increased probability of financial crises that actually have a knock-on effect onto the real economy. Can you say something about that? What's triggered this, and um, how bad it actually is at this point?
0: Yeah, I think that the, I think one of the points to um, you know to note or to accept is that you know whereas financial markets were in many cases the servants of the real economy historically. Um, it's almost the other way around now that financial markets have become dominant. And if you look at the business cycle, it's, it's very much a cycle In the financial markets. When you get booms and busts in financial markets, you often see that mirrored subsequently in the real economy. So for example, after the 2008 financial crisis, we got a recession. Um, In the lead up to the financial crisis, there was a housing boom, uh, I'm sure everyone will remember, which actually was one of the factors which helped to to boost economic activity. Uh, You can see very much, even if you go through and uh, look at the, in detail at the emerging economies. The emerging markets, uh, their economic cycles are increasingly le- led by financial cycles, and those financial cycles in turn are often driven by cross border flows. So the financial sector is very important. Uh, what we're seeing now is a significant downturn in financial markets. And lo and behold, I think that most people are predicting that we're going to get a recession coming out of that. So I think that uh, finance is is very important in that regard, uh, and we've got to pay attention to it. Now, that may not be the ideal situation to be in, but it's it's a fact. Financial markets are dominant, and we've got to understand liquidity flows and how they operate and how they uh, influence uh, financial and economic movements. Would you say that the periodicity
3: of the cycle has shortened or have just the, has just the amplitude of the
0: where the the extremes gotten wider. if you look at the evidence the evidence seems to show that the uh, the amplitude has changed uh, so we're seeing bigger swings um, and I'll maybe come to a reason why that is in a moment but I think the the other thing is that the the frequency seems to be pretty constant. Uh, we tend to think that the financial sector the financial cycle rather lasts around about 65 months. And if you trace uh, the cycle going back, you know, well into the uh, or right back to the early 1960s, uh, that frequency seems to have been pretty much intact. Uh, but the amplitude has changed significantly. So whereas before it was a relatively mild cycle, now it's actually quite a fierce cycle. Now I think the reasons for that is that uh, what you have, what you get, is uh, a lot more leverage in the system. Uh, And you also get a situation where central banks, if they want to make an impact, have to uh, have to expand uh, their operations uh, much in a much greater size because they've got to sort of they've got to expand into uh, a lot more entities or they've got they've got to to, uh, uh, they've got to seep into a lot more avenues or cracks or whatever to actually get to uh, solve problems or uh, to actually restrain the system. And we spoke earlier on about the euro-dollar markets uh, in order to tighten the system uh, during the era of euro-dollar dominance. Uh, the central banks had to run tight, ever tighter monetary policies uh, to try and make sure that uh, uh, the liquidity was tight domestically and there wasn't uh, you know, sufficient uh, offshore to bail out uh, domestic banks. In that case. So I think that it, the amplitude has certainly become a lot bigger. I mean, the other thing that you've got as a, you know, uh, in the background is that, you know, I- inevitably you're getting a situation which is that as the world gets bigger financially, it becomes more volatile. And I think the reason for that is that basically uh, you've got a situation where liquidity is ever expanding and solvency is in progressive decline because the quality of debt. Uh, at the margin is continually going down. The quality of that debt is deteriorating. And that's really a function of the huge amounts of debt that we've got that uh, the world economy has got itself saddled with. Now, I think there's an interesting question here, which is beginning to be, uh, I think, thought about more and more in academia, about what is the sort of correct monetary policy in this world that I describe as being a world dominated by refinancing rather than new financing. And there's an echo here for those that are interested in history that go right back to the 19th century. In the 19th century, the London financial markets were very much refinancing markets, but they were refinancing trade bills very often. Uh, But you did see periodic crises. And out of those crises... A uh, you know a, a big one being in uh, in uh, 1866 with the and Gurney. and Gurney was a was a, a major bill broker. It was a what we now call a shadow bank. It was the world's biggest financial institution, but it basically defaulted and was not bailed out by the Bank of England at the time. Now uh, that sent shudders through the London markets, and out of that, um, uh, a journalist called Walter Badger. Uh, later known for a book called Lombard Street, which has made him the doyen of central bankers now, uh, wrote about the ideal uh, central banking policy, which was to lend at a high rate of interest uh, against good collateral. In other words, lend freely at high interest rates against good, good quality uh, asset backing. And uh, today, uh, that message has been completely lost because central banks are doing yeah. the absolute reverse of that. They're lending at low interest rates. They're not lending very much at low interest rates, and they're lending against poor collateral. Uh, what they need to do is to change. Now, the problem that the central banks have got themselves into really comes back to uh, a general problem that many of us face, which is the entry of China into the world economy. And that was sort of formally came with the... Uh, with. China, with China being allowed into the World Trade Organization in 2001. Now, from that point, uh, China was able to flood the world with very cheap goods. And as many people remember, that was the era of disinflation or very low inflation uh, for yeah, many, many years, if not uh, you know, almost two decades. Uh, that spooked central bankers in the West because one of the things they'd been taught was to avoid deflation. And it was considered to be a major bogey that price uh, inflation was too low. I mean, you, you see the problem in, in spades in Japan through this period. Japan, even today, is very concerned about low inflation rates. And a lot of that is coming through from uh, cheap Chinese goods. So what central bankers did uh, to avoid deflation was to keep interest rates at very low levels. Now, the problem is that what they muddled up was something we called cost deflation with monetary deflation. Monetary deflation is a bad thing. Cost deflation is a good thing. Okay. But they muddled the two up. They fudged the two things together. And they basically said, uh, this is deflation period. It's probably monetary deflation. So we're going to keep interest rates low. The problem with doing that is if you have low interest rates, you encourage debt. And so what you've seen through this period uh, associated or paralleling China's entry into the world economy is a massive take-up of debt in the West. Uh, and so we're saddled with this huge burden, which is 350 trillion, three and a half times uh, world GDP, which has to be financed. And that has turned the Western financial markets into refinancing mechanisms rather than new financing mechanisms. And as I come back to, um, refinancing mechanisms are all about liquidity, not interest rates. So what you need to do is to think about the level of liquidity in the system, but you also need to get interest rates up to try and stop this appetite or this huge enthusiasm for debt. But you've got to keep the liquidity there so at least you can finance what you've got.
3: Uh, well, let me sketch out a scenario then. Uh, I'm not solid on this, but I'd be very interested to hear your insights. Let's say that yields, say at the ten-year point, blew out pretty rapidly. Would that have an impact on the repo markets? Would the value of the collateral be viewed differently uh, for short-term lending, or or would that not be a major thing?
0: Well, it would. uh, I mean, the answer would be that it it would uh, it would not be positive. That's for sure. I mean the the I mean the fact that. Uh, It depends on the, on the range of collateral that you're, that you're looking at. But I mean, basically, um, uh, if you're looking at pristine collateral, which is government bonds, uh, if you've got relatively short duration bonds, the impact of higher interest rates are not going to have that material effect. I mean, that's obviously why they're held as, as collateral. But clearly, as you move through the capital stack and you start to go towards lower and lower quality collateral, it's going to have big effects uh the answer is it's not bullish uh for sure um if uh, you know if, if interest rates go up to that extent but it really highlights the vulnerability of the system and what it means that central banks have always got to be alert to this and if you see situations where interest rates are going up sharply collateral values are falling or there's a shortage of good collateral which is the situation now anyway uh and you've got a lack of liquidity you're going to see major financial problems and central banks will have to come back in Now, I think there's, there's no mistake and we ought not to, you know, uh, you know, delude ourselves that central bank balance sheets are going to shrink forever. They're not. (laughs) They're going to, they're going to be expanding again pretty soon. We're in a world of permanent QE and permanent QE, uh, means that because liquidity is fungible, that asset markets generally will inflate over the longer term. Now you know this. This may you know people may say, well, okay, this is just a sort of greater fool theory, but you know maybe it is at the end of the day. The fact is, though, that uh, we're kicking the can down the road. But maybe it's quite a long road. Uh, you know, this may go on for twenty years, thirty years, forty years. I mean, just take a look at debt levels in the West, high as they are, and uh, you know as uh, as burdensome as they are, they've been higher in the past. Um, you know, we we could easily double the debt levels from here and still be breathing. Uh, the world, the world financial system would be a lot flakier, a lot uh, more fragile. Central banks would have to do a lot more to keep them keep the plate spinning, but we'd still be operating. And I think the you know the reality is that the path of least resistance is a path which says we take on more debt, and central banks are ever present but we've really got to get off this. And the only way to get off this is to keep interest rates high over the medium term.
3: It, it Maybe this sounds simple-minded, but isn't a higher level of yield also good for the banking system because it encourages them to lend or the price of lending is more transparent in some sense?
0: Yeah. I mean, ba- banks typically make more money when you've got you know, fatter interest margins for sure. Yeah. So a higher interest rate environment tends to be generally pretty good for the banking system. But I wouldn't, you know, I, I I would sort of hesitate to say this, but I think the the problem is not really in the high street banks right now. Uh the problem is in the general architecture of the financial system. Uh if you go back to two thousand and eight, uh it was the shadow banks that were really the problem. Uh and the banks were the traditional high street banks were made the solution. So regulation was focused very much on traditional banking, even though they weren't really the culprits in two thousand and eight. but uh that's the you know that's the easiest uh, maybe institution to regulate uh, but generally speaking, I think we you know it's the whole architecture of the system which is which is uh, which is the problem.
3: uh on that point, I'm somewhat obsessive about order of magnitude estimates. I can look back and see that the euro dollar market may have been ten to fifteen trillion, let's say in 2010. I'm making up a number, but that's roughly correct. Has it grown much since then? Ha- has the offshore uh, short-term lending market expanded or has it kind of flatlined?
0: It, well, the, 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 the estimates that the BIS put out uh, are, the, are the, of the magnitude that you, you correctly say. So, of the order of, of maybe somewhere between 10 and 15 trillion is the size of offshore dollar lending. Um, the, it's often been claimed that the euro-dollar markets may be a lot larger than that in size, in truth. I mean, at the end of the day, as I say, it's a fairly nebulous figure. We don't really know. Um, relative to that uh, to that time, the euro-dollar markets have really flatlined. They haven't done very much. Part of the reason for that was that there was a legislative change Um, in, uh, I believe it was probably 2018, if I remember, when there was a tax amnesty uh, that came out of the Trump administration. And uh, US banks were encouraged to repatriate uh, funds to the US. And that took a lot of the steam out or the impetus out of the euro-dollar markets uh, at the time. So this is sort of part of this general remit Uh, that the US authorities have to try and take control of the credit system again. Uh, And it's part of what they were doing with the Federal Reserve et et al. So in my view, uh, the central banks are bigger than the euro-dollar markets now. Uh, They certainly weren't 10, 15 years ago. And
3: what makes it so difficult to estimate size? Is it the rehypothecation of securities again and again, the chains of interdependencies? Or is it simply that we don't have even basic data in that space as well, to what.
0: Yeah, it's it's all of the above. I mean, it's not they're they're not they're not reported numbers. Um, they're estimated numbers, um, and you've as you rightly say, there's rehypothecation. There's you know there's uh, there are chains of lending, etc. Yeah.
3: Now that uh, I I know that there's some secret source here, so I won't won't try to reveal that but how do you go about in your research business then making some assessment about at least at the very least the rate of change in the size of a market such as this
0: well in terms of the um okay the the the, the in terms of the cross border markets let let's take that uh, let's take it step by step in terms of the cross border markets we can monitor flows um into the in into and out of these markets the actual stock size of the market is the question that I was raising. We don't really know what the stock size is. That that may be an issue, or the, even the turnover. What we've got a fairly good idea about is some of the flows. Uh, and that's one of the things that we, we can monitor. Um, the flow data that comes out of the US, which is the so-called TIC data, the ticks data, is not necessarily uh uh, let's say a true a true indication of dollar flows because a lot of those uh, dollar flows occur in offshore jurisdictions, uh, you know, such as Bermuda or Cayman or whatever. So what we tend to do is look at the other side of that to track it. Look at money that's flowing into the US from Asian or European entities. So we look at it really from the other side, and uh, that's one of the ones we one of the ways we capture the data. In terms of the general picture of liquidity, what we're looking at is we're monitoring uh, central banks, central bank activity, that is looking at both the size and the composition of central bank balance sheets. We look at the private sector, and that really comes down to three or four entities. It's looking at uh, at high street banking, uh, the credit uh, supply of high street banks, the credit supply that comes through the shadow banking system, um, and Also, the flows of money that are coming, the savings flows of the household sector and the cash flow uh, of the corporate sector. So, all those four entities are basically sources of funds. And we very much take a flow of funds view of the world, which was, uh, goes back to my sort of uh, heritage of Salomon Brothers. Henry Kaufman, who was uh, you know the head of research at Salomon Brothers and a well-known name in the markets in the nineteen eighties, was already a pioneer of flow of funds accounting and analysis in the U.S. financial markets, and uh, you know that that legacy maintains.
3: Um, now, my my perception of this is that your methods, your research methods, are particularly valuable at extremes in the cycle, or as as the. As the Economy or the liquidity cycle heads toward an extreme. Is that fair to say? Yeah,
0: I think absolutely. I think that inflection points are critical, um, and what you really need to know is where you are in the cycle, in particular. But uh, more particularly, are you at an extreme? Are you close to a turning point or not? And you know, one of the things that is going on right now is that the liquidity cycle is heading down sharply. Um, We're not yet at the trough, but we uh, we've collapsed in terms of our index numbers. We we use indexes of liquidity. We published a monthly index of global liquidity, but also indexes for uh, 90 other, 90-odd countries uh, as well within that. Uh, the global liquidity index was, uh, let's say 15 months ago, was, was around 90, a range between 0 and 100. It was up at 90, so it was very high. Uh, latest reading is about 23. So it's come right right down, particularly in the last six to nine months, as central banks have been tightening significantly. One other area that I think you've added tremendous value,
3: uh, in in my humble opinion, is in the currency space because I think there's there are some insights that you have that many people perhaps aren't aware of, with regard to relative liquidity, both in the private and the public sector across countries. Maybe you could say something about that. Yeah,
0: let let me say a little bit about that. I mean, in terms of uh, what drives currencies, the traditional view is that, or there are two traditional views. One is Uh, interest rate, relative interest rates. Uh, I've never found great success at that. I mean, it's uh, it's a nice idea, but it tends not to work very well in practice. Uh, The other idea is looking at relative monetary growth. Again, that uh, has plausibility, but it's not a particularly good guide. And so people come to the conclusion that currencies are very difficult to predict. Uh, What we do is that we look at different types of liquidity, and we separate what you might think of as private liquidity from central bank liquidity private sector liquidity creation in a in a currency area is positive for a currency so if uh, the us economy is growing fast and it's generating lots of cash flow uh, banks can be lending on good quality projects etc uh, it's quite likely the currency will be strong because the return on capital in that country is strong and money will be attracted into it uh, at the same time central bank liquidity is a negative for a currency so if the Federal Reserve is printing lots of dollars, then the dollar will weaken. So what we look at is we distinguish between the two types of liquidity, and we effectively look at the spread between them. So if private sector uh, liquidity in the US is strong, and the Federal Reserve is running a tight policy, then what you've got is the uh, is the recipe for a very strong dollar. And that has really been the case for much of the last 18 months or so. So what you've seen is either... Very strong cash flow coming out of U.S. corporations and U.S. businesses. At the same time, the Federal Reserve has been running an increasingly tight policy over recent months. And uh, through that period, the dollar has remained throughout pretty strong.
3: Understood. So if the Fed is tight, the message is the dollar is likely to be strong because the supply of
0: dollars globally is restricted. Yeah, unless the U.S. economy goes into deep recession and cash flow gets, uh, gets disturbed private set the cash flow, then, then the dollar could weaken.
3: For non-dollar crosses, is the method equally valid?
0: Yeah, exactly exactly the same methodology. And we, we look at crosses using uh, that same those same metrics. Um, just, I know we've jumped around a little bit, but is there anything you
3: want to say about the current regime beyond what you've already said? And then we can perhaps um, end with a few parting comments.
0: So, Sure. I think the, I think the environment uh, right now is one where liquidity has been tightened dramatically. If I was a central bank, I would be very uh, alert to uh, falling term premium in the bond markets, uh, in many cases, uh, collapsing term premium, and the very fact the term premium are negative. I mean, they shouldn't be as negative as they are now, and they shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be falling. That's telling us something about dangers in the system. Uh, in other words, there's a, a great move risk-off in the bond markets, and that's not a that's not a great uh, feature. Uh, also, if you look at uh, primary dealer statistics in the U.S., you'll see a progressive climb in numbers of failed trades. Uh, that also is not a particularly good uh, a good indicator. It's telling us that liquidity conditions are tight. Central banks are determined to reduce the size of their balance sheet. The Federal Reserve is saying they're going to cut the balance sheet by about a third, so bring it down from about nine trillion to about six and a half. That is a huge contraction of liquidity. The Federal Reserve claims that's equivalent to about 25 basis points on Fed funds, so they dismiss it. Uh, they say it's a bit like uh, an air conditioner wearing the background. Uh, I think it's uh, you know it's it's a lot worse than that. It's a wrecking ball, not an air conditioner. And that degree of slashing of the balance sheet, in our estimation, is equivalent to about five percentage points on Fed funds. So we're looking at a big, big squeeze if this goes through. Short answer is it won't happen. Uh, There'll be disaster before then. The financial markets will see dislocation. The world economy and the U.S. economy will be in recession. And there'll be some policy pivot uh, in 2023, uh, probably led by more liquidity rather than uh, a quick cut to interest rates. Uh, the dollar will be remain strong. The threat to the dollar is a collapsing euro, which looks to us inevitable at some stage, given the parlous situation of the European economies and their very muddled monetary policy. And uh, a collapsing a collapsing euro will not be good news for the U.S. And the U.S. maybe maybe will try and engineer a softer dollar coming out of that, if that's a, if that's a likelihood. Uh, financial markets are in a difficult situation for six months. Uh, But I would be looking to buy and re-enter financial markets aggressively sometime in early 2023.
3: Now, this sort of brings us to a slightly more technical issue, which is the location of the Fed pivots. It's moved around quite a bit. I mean, I think several months ago, it was June 23, then it pulled into March, and it's been quite volatile if you just look at the Fed Fund's futures curve as a simple proxy. Um, how does that relate to the leads and lags in terms of Fed policy transmission? Do you think the tightening has a quicker impact than easing or vice versa? Uh, do you have a handle on what you think the lag might be between economic conditions and tightening of the balance sheet?
0: Yes, it te- the, the, it tends to be, um, the, the lead time tends to be about eight to nine months. Okay. Um, it uh, the liquidity has a bigger effect uh, if there's a dearth or, a, or an absence of liquidity. So if, if the Fed has taken a lot out and begins to put liquidity back in, it will have a refreshing effect uh, you know, quite quickly. So that lead time might come down. But one of the things to remember is that if you look at the, the history of financial markets, generally there's been about a nine-month lead time between uh, f- changes in liquidity and subsequent changes in the market, Uh, And at the low point of the market, when the S&P is traditionally below its trough, what you tend to see is the maximum easing uh, by the Federal Reserve. So those two things historically have correlated together. So in other words, the Federal Reserve is easing before, um, um, uh, before the market reaches its bottom. And
3: expectations management, which is a phrase that's bandied about Quite a bit nowadays, where the Fed is actually affecting markets simply by what they say or uh, their communications. Is is that something you're skeptical of because it doesn't have a real data driven foundation, or is it? Uh,
0: yeah, I I'm does it ex- have an
3: impact on lags?
0: I'm I'm extremely skeptical about that. I think that you know the central banks have obviously got to yeah you know, provide a framework, a stable framework. But I think that you know Bernanke was cynical enough to say that uh, you know central banky is uh, is whatever is ninety eight percent words and two percent action. I think that's ridiculous. Uh, it Clearly, it isn't uh, because the size of the balance sheet is so important. Uh, now I'm sure they know that, but I think this is just for general consumption. In the same way as I cannot believe that the Federal Reserve. Uh, would realistically say that a one-third reduction in their balance sheet is only equivalent to 25 basis points on Fed funds. I mean, common sense tells you it's a lot lot more than that. Um, So I think that a lot of this is for public consumption.
3: Understood. Well, we've covered quite a few things, uh, and I'd like to end by highly recommending Capital Wars. I think it's an excellent book. It ties together a lot of issues that people are concerned about nowadays, geopolitical and market. And uh, it does it in a very data-driven and detailed way. So congratulations for that. Good. Thank you, Harry. Been a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure.
2: And with that, I'd like to hand it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Harry and Michael, for a fascinating conversation. The topic of capital flows, and as Michael puts it, capital wars, is incredibly important as it ties into the whole question about market liquidity and what really drives this. I must say that the issue of corporate's ability to roll their debt, now standing at a total of $350 trillion, or the same as three and a half times world GDP, and with an average life of only five years, that means that about $70 trillion has to be refinanced every year. Now, this is something that I'm not sure if investors are fully pricing into their risk models, but perhaps they should. And when you look at some of the tension we see from an economic perspective on a global scale, then clearly the U.S. Fed retains the upper hand in its battle over currency supremacy for now. But on the other hand, China is attacking. In other words, the capital wars have already started. Make sure you go and follow Michael's and Harry's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to learn from from those who have been in the trenches for many years and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continue. From Harry and me, thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode and in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged.